Welcome to our Curious Travels, a tourist guide to dark travel destinations around the globe. Join us as we explore dark history and sites related to death and destruction. We hope we can get to know one another along the way. Our names are Fred and Steven. We're from San Antonio, Texas. We're a couple who enjoy traveling the world, curious of the dark and often seldom told stories of history. Today, we are in the desert of New Mexico. Long ago, people lived among the mountains. They woke with the sun. They were one with the earth. These indigenous people felt their ancestors keep watch through the sky and clouds. They hunted and gathered. They traveled east on the arid plains to hunt the buffalo and south into the desert for gathering mezcal agave. They witnessed and celebrated life and death. These people believed that from the beginning, the earth had already been in existence and was and is in the process of continued change. That change was and continues to be seen as the manifestation of the cyclical powers of nature. They read the stars and they pondered the mysteries of life. The people had an understanding that the physical world however involved more than just the information acquired by the census. These people believed in ritual. DA is supposed to be a power responsible for objects being alive or having life. And it is believed to be a supernatural force that allows ritual transformation to occur in people engaged in ceremonial activity. Through ceremonial activity, they connect it with creator and the land. They witness bats emerging from a cave, which they later use as shelter, a place to prepare food, and they would even adorn the cave walls with their art. The Mescalero Apache, the Zuni Pueblo, and other groups were all acquainted with this desert. This land is known today as New Mexico and more specifically Carlsbad Caverns National Park. Carlsbad Caverns National Park is situated in the Guadalupe Mountains of southeastern New Mexico. The main attraction in the park is a large cavern. Visitors to the cave can hike in on their own via the natural entrance or take an elevator from the visitor center. We hiked in for a breathtaking view. The hike is a beautiful descent into a vast underground cave. It's almost like entering a new world, full of mystery and wonder. You can feel the air shift from the heat of the desert to the subterranean cool and humid temperature of 56 degrees. Bring a sweater. The park entrance is located on US Highway 62-180, approximately 18 miles southwest of Carlsbad, New Mexico. Approximately two-thirds of the park has been set aside as a wilderness area, helping to ensure no further changes will be made to the habitat. Carlsbad Cavern includes a large limestone chamber, named simply the Big Room, which is almost 4,056 feet long, 620 feet wide, and 255 feet high as its highest point. 
The big room is the largest chamber in North America and the 32nd largest in the world. In 1930, Carlsbad Caverns was established as a national park and was also recognized as a World Heritage Site in 1995. The park is renowned globally for being one of the most accessible and best preserved cave complexes in the world. The desert near Carlsbad Caverns National Park can be a harsh environment for humans. With the summer temperatures between 95 degrees Fahrenheit and 110 degrees Fahrenheit and higher. The wilderness survival rule of threes states that a person can survive three minutes without air, three hours without shelter in a harsh environment, three days without water, and three weeks without food. The desert can be deadly. A desert death is defined as any death that occurs in the desert and could be attributed to a list of causes including environmental, animal-related, undetermined, and other causes. Calculating the number of deaths in the desert is difficult as there are no published statistics. Often, the deceased might be out of reach and missed, which will add to the problem of calculating just how many people die in the desert. Immigration is a major reason for deaths in deserts. There have been reports on the estimation of migrant deaths through the past years in the southwest United States-Mexico border. From 1990 to approximately 1998, the Tucson sector reported an average of 19 migrant deaths annually. The number of deaths has increased regularly, reaching 75 in 2001 in the southwest United States border sectors. In 2001, the United States established strict measures to control its borders, which led to a dramatic rise of migrant deaths in Arizona's deserts in 2005. From 1998 to 2013, more than 6,500 migrant deaths have been reported. The highest score reported was in 2005, where the number of fatalities was approximately 492. The number of deaths continues to occur today. Fatalities tied to heat are notoriously hard to track. Official tallies often only reflect death from heat stroke. Hypothermia is listed on the death certificates. Using that methodology, researchers estimate that some 700 plus people in the United States die each year directly from extreme heat exposure. In our national parks, there have been 68 reported heat-related deaths in parks since 2007, the deadliest month being August. 2023 is set to break records. It's easy to see just how dangerous Mother Nature can be. Driving through the desert is beautiful, especially if you encounter the sunrise or sunset. Air conditioning in your face, your favorite playlist, and your favorite soda in hand. As you cruise down the highway, you might not realize the dangers just outside of your car. The beauty of the desert can be captivating, but a deadly force. We have 14 tips to remember when driving through the desert. But first, it's important to make sure your vehicle is in good operating condition before setting out on a road trip. Number one, bring your phone and phone charger. Number two, bring water. Number three, make sure your air conditioning system works. Number four, fill up with gas. Number five, check the tires. Number six, 
Learn to change the tires if you happen to get stuck on the side of the road with tire trouble. Number seven, check the battery. Number eight, be careful of hot car parts. Metal car parts can get very hot in desert areas. You can burn your skin if you happen to touch a metal car part such as the seat belt buckle. It is advised to park in the shade when possible and crack open a couple of windows. Number nine, beware of dust storms. Number 10, beware of rainstorms. Deserts aren't always just dry, hot, and sunny. Big rainstorms or monsoons occasionally cross through desert areas. The roads can be very slick when rainstorms occur. Certain spots on the road can flood as well. It is best to avoid driving through flooded areas if possible. Number 11, don't hike for help. If your vehicle happens to break down, call for help. Number 12, never leave kids or pets in the car. Number 13, carry enough clothing and blankets. Number 14, enjoy the view. Even though the desert can be dangerous, it also contains beautiful scenery. Enjoy your travels. The desert is magical. Growing up, my mom told me of long childhood road trips with my tios and tia. One of her favorite road trips to share was visiting Carlsbad Caverns. She told me about the bats, the vast beauty, and the elevator that takes you in and out of the caverns. Carlsbad has been on my bucket list since hearing my mom's stories. Carlsbad Caverns doesn't disappoint. There's a lot to be said about this location. It's majestic and it's a sobering experience. It reminds you of just how small you really are. How vast and mysterious our world is. A journey into the caverns is venturing into the unknown. I think the caverns are perhaps one of the scariest places on earth. A place where darkness is a complete void of light. The darkness of the cave won't allow you to see your own hands in front of your face. It's a place where our mind and the darkness around us begin to play tricks on us. Darkness can haunt us. For a long time, caverns have been a place of shelter, profit, and history. Carlsbad Caverns has a particularly interesting history, once being part of the ocean floor where no ocean exists today. Carlsbad is the aftermath of an apocalypse, the remnants of a major shift in nature. You can still feel the spirits of both the indigenous and the tourists who have traveled through here throughout time. To see certain areas of the caverns, you will need to book a cavern tour. The guided tour took us through the King's and Queen's Palace some of the most beautiful parts of the caverns where humanity knows so little. The park ranger was thoughtful and took time to answer questions and even share a little bit of indigenous history, as well as share of the dark stories of how humans over the years have harmed the caverns. And as we traveled through the various rooms, the ranger shared stanzas of a poem about the depths of the cavern. The temperature inside is both cool humid, a perfect contrast to the desert temperatures right above. It was a special treat to even enjoy a snack at the bottom of the cavern.
Many people flock to this national park because of the wildlife. The most famous of the park's mammals are the bats. The park hosts 17 different bat species. The large colony of Brazilian free-tailed bats wows visitors every evening from spring through fall when they fly out of the cave for food. Two other species can also be found regularly in Carlsbad Cavern, cave myotis and fringed myotis bats. They typically roost in a different part of the cavern and fly about 1.5 miles before exiting the natural entrance. Visitors can participate in the bat flight program. No reservations are required for this program that occurs every evening from Memorial Day weekend through October. The program takes place at Bat Flight Amphitheater, located at the natural entrance to Carlsbad Caverns. The start time for the program changes as the summer progresses and sunset time changes. The Brazilian free-tailed bats weigh about one half ounce, which is equivalent to the weight of three nickel coins. Their wingspan is approximately 11 inches, 28 centimeters. Bat numbers in the cave are variable. The resident colony was about 400,000 in the summer of 2005. During the spring and fall migration, the bat numbers in the cavern were documented as high as 793,000 in 2005. There are seasonal fluctuations of the numbers, as well as daily fluctuations. Bats became famously associated with vampires and horror because of the 1897 novel by Bram Stoker. Before Dracula, there was Christopher Columbus, whose voyage to the New World would start a wide variety of misconceptions and folklore. Vampire bats are only known from the New World because of the exploratory voyages of people like Amerigo Vespucci and Christopher Columbus. The Old World knew about the existence of the New World before the word vampire came into the English language. But such explorers were not interested in studying the fauna, rather how much gold and silver they could pillage from the natives. The natives themselves must have known about these bats, and most probably had a name for them, but it wouldn't have been a vampire. Rumors from the voyages sparked wild and intriguing conversations of blood-sucking bats. Only a few species of bats actually suck blood. Vampire bats, members of the subfamily Desmodontidae, are leaf-nosed bats currently found only in Central and South America. Their food source is the blood of other animals, a dietary trait called hematophagy. Three bat species fed solely on blood, the common vampire bat, the hairy-legged vampire bat, and the white-winged vampire bat. Carlsbad Caverns thankfully does not have vampire bats. Bats do play an essential role in pest control, pollinating plants and dispersing seeds. Recent studies estimate that bats eat enough pests to save more than $1 billion per year in crop damage and pesticide costs in the United States corn industry alone. The park has a lot to offer visitors, including camping and hiking. It's a beautiful place. Maybe that's why two best friends decided to include the park in their 1999 road trip. David Coughlin and Rafi Kadokian had been on the road several days, headed from Massachusetts to California, where Coughlin intended to pursue a master's degree in environmental science at UC Santa Barbara. Coughlin had planned to travel alone, but delayed the trip so Kadokian, his best friend, could join him. 
Kodikian, who worked at a Boston investment firm, had some cross-country experience. Two years earlier, he had spent 10 weeks traveling through 25 states and camping out for most of the trip. He chronicled the journey in a freelance series for the Boston Globe. Quote, I had traveled through deserts, grasslands, mountains, prairies, swamps, rain, and sandstorms. My trip has been caked on my tires, dripped on my boots, and seared into my memory as one of the greatest experiences I could have ever imagined. And God willing, I'll get the chance to do it again. The two friends pulled up to the visitor center around 3 p.m., August 4th, 1999. Coughlin and Kodiakian. They picked up an overnight camping permit, listening patiently as the desk attendant reviewed regulations and recommended they carry one gallon of water per person per day. Then they drove about a mile into the trailhead for Rattlesnake Canyon. Gear in tow, they headed down the footpath, carefully negotiating its twists and turns as they descended deep into the canyon. After days of hiking, the two became lost and dehydrated. Kodikian and Coughlin had only brought three pints of water and one pint of Gatorade. One pint of water was used to boil hot dogs during their first evening in the canyon. Although they had a topographical map, neither knew how to read it. The two took extreme measures including licking rocks eating cactus fruit, and even drinking their own urine. Kodikian abandoned the idea of drinking his own urine after gagging. The third night, Coughlin began vomiting, according to Kodikian. On August 8th, Kodikian wrote in his journal, I killed and buried my best friend today. Dave had been in pain all night. At around five or six, he turned to me and begged that I put my knife through his chest. I did, and the second time when he wouldn't die. Lance Matson, a park ranger who had been searching for the campers, discovered Kodikian badly dehydrated. When the rangers inquired about Coughlin, Kodikian pointed to a pile of rocks and replied, I killed him. Kodikian's attorney, Gary Mitchell, described the killing as an act of kindness. He further stated that it was part of a death pact between the friends and Kodikian intended to kill himself too, but was too weak to do so. Eddy County Sheriff Michael A. Click stated that Kodikian was moderately to severely dehydrated and wasn't close to dying when Matson found him. Authorities further noted that Kodikian had buried Coffin's body under rocks, some weighing more than 70 pounds. The weight of the rocks and the completion of the task seemed remarkable for someone seriously dehydrated. The autopsy on Coughlin revealed that while he was dehydrated, it didn't appear to be fatal. At his trial, Kodikin pleaded guilty to second-degree murder. During the sentencing part of Kodikin's trial, it became clear that Coughlin's vomiting was not indicative of severe dehydration, but instead was most likely a reaction to unripe cactus fruit. While Kodikian faced a possible maximum penalty of 20 years in prison, he was instead sentenced by a district judge, Jay Forbes, to 15 years, 
with all but two years suspended, followed by five years of probation. It's a sad story of a good time gone wrong and the dangers of the desert and dehydration. Coughlin's parents were not present, but they issued a statement to prosecutor Les Williams, who read it in court. We can think of no reason why Raffi would have wished David any harm or pain. The statement said, Moreover, we cannot presume to know what transpired or the thoughts and emotions the two experienced during the days before David's death. To be sure, we have questions. However, we find it difficult to believe that there was any malicious intent. The desert has so many tragedies and mysteries. On July 16, 1945, J. Robert Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project scientists detonated an atomic bomb for the first time ever at the Trinity test site in New Mexico. The testing site, located in the Tularosa Basin, was not an isolated area. Nearly half a million people, many of them Native Americans, lived within 115 mile radius of the detonation some only 12 miles away. These people and others became the first victims of nuclear fallout. Many of them heard and felt the Trinity explosion about 5.30 that morning and saw the bright blast it created in the sky. Some had direct contact with the fallout material. One witness at a summer camp in Ruidoso, New Mexico, said she and other girls played in falling white debris like it was snow catching it on their tongues and rubbing it on their faces. Others came into contact with the fallout through their environment, as the radioactive debris infected the surrounding water, crops, livestock, and land. The U.S. government, keen on avoiding panic and maintaining the project's high level of wartime secrecy, told Tularosa Basin residents that the blast they'd seen was simply an accidental explosion of ammunition and pyrotechnics. Officials had decided against evacuating the area, nor to warn the residents of potential health effects. Even after the U.S. dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki a few weeks later, killing an estimated 110,000 to 210,000 people and effectively ending the war, government officials still failed to inform Tularosa Basin residents about the potential effects of the blast. When asked directly about the detonation's health risks, they denied any hazard. One of the most immediate health impacts of the Trinity test site was a spike in infant deaths. In 1947, an alarmed healthcare provider in Roswell named Catherine S. Benke wrote to the Stanford Warren, who was responsible for radiation safety during the Manhattan Project, to ask him if these deaths had any connection to the Trinity test. Quote, as I recall, in August of 1945, the month after the first bomb was tested in New Mexico, there were about 35 infant deaths here, Binky wrote in her letter to Warren according to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. She continued to say, I understand that the rate at Alamogordo near the site of the test was even higher 
than Roswell. At the time, scientists understood that exposure to nuclear radiation could lead to tumors, cancer, and other negative health effects. In fact, just five days after the Trinity test, Warren had told Manhattan Project leader General Leslie Groves that the nuclear fallout from the test represented a very serious hazard over 2,700 square miles of area downwind of the Trinity site. Over the next several decades, people who live through the blast began to develop cancer, heart disease, and other health problems. People born after the blast develop these problems too. And people who live near Trinity and other nuclear test sites began to identify themselves as downwinders and made connections between their community's health problems and the government's nuclear test. In 1990, the United States passed the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act to provide money to some downwinders of the Nevada test site near Las Vegas. However, the act doesn't provide any compensation or apology to the downwinders of the Trinity test site. In 2005, Tina Cordova co-founded the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium to draw attention to the region's radiation exposure and demand government action. The organization promotes amendments to the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act that would include New Mexico downwinders and other people with nuclear radiation exposure. The 1990 Act is an admission on the part of our government of the harm that they did to other downwinders, said Cordova, who was born in Tularosa in 1959 and is a cancer survivor. The problem is, the program doesn't go far enough because it left out the first people ever exposed to radiation from a bomb, which are the people of New Mexico. In a 2010 report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention concluded that exposure rates from the Trinity test were measured at levels 10,000 times higher than currently allowed. The first nuclear detonation caused an ongoing health crisis for which New Mexico's downwinders are tragically still demanding an apology and compensation. Trinity site is located on White Sands Missile Range and is closed to the public. On the first Saturday in April and the third Saturday in October, the U.S. Army hosts a Trinity site open house when the public may visit Trinity site. Just a little over three hours away, outside of Roswell, New Mexico, you will find an oasis of beauty and folklore. Bottomless Lake State Park was once believed to be actually bottomless, but it's not. It's 90 feet deep, don't worry. One of the most common legends is about a giant monster turtle who lives in the depths of the water. I credit it from the 1980s. A guest from the park said to have witnessed this cryptid giant turtle come to the surface. However, there has been no evidence of a giant turtle in bottomless lakes. The beauty surpasses the legends. The view is deceiving because the lakes seem very shallow, but they are just extremely reflective, acting as Earth's mirror. Devil's Inkwell, the smallest of the lakes, is named for its steep sides and dark waters. 
we recommend checking this park out at sunset. Its beauty is unmatched. The mysteries and lore attach this space. It's a great place to camp, hike, or swim. And we enjoy this stop before exploring Roswell, New Mexico. Roswell has benefited from the interest in the alleged UFO incident of 1947. It was reported that an object crashed in the general vicinity in June or July of 1947. Allegedly an extraterrestrial spacecraft and its alien occupants. Now, the city attracts visitors of all kinds throughout the year. The city is also well known for its UFO festival. Believers and skeptics alike are invited to celebrate the Roswell incident every summer. It all started in June of 1947. Media nationwide reported civilian pilot Kenneth Arnold's account of objects flying at incredible speed. Arnold's description of what would become known as flying saucers incited a wave of over 800 sightings. Many of the accounts echoed Arnold's descriptions with speeds beyond known planes and elements from spacecrafts like glass domes, cockpits, fins, legs, jet pipes, vapor trails, and even propellers. On July 4, 1947, United Airlines Flight 105 reported seeing multiple flying disks. This is a quote from the Associated Press from July 8, 1947. The many rumors regarding the flying disk became a reality yesterday when the intelligence office of the 509th Bomb Group was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disk through the cooperation of one of the local ranchers and the sheriff's office of Chavez County. The flying object landed on a ranch near Roswell sometime last week. Not having phone facilities, the rancher stored the disc until such time as he was able to contact the sheriff's office, who in turn notified Major Jesse A. Marcel of the 509th Bomb Group Intelligence Office. When rancher W.W. Mac Brazel discovered debris scattered across several acres of his ranch in mid-June, he did not see the tin foil, rubber, tape, and thin-witted beams as unusual. Brazel gathered it and pushed it under some brush to dispose of it. The ranch had no phone or radio, leaving Brazel unaware of the ongoing flying saucer craze. On a Saturday evening, July 5th, he drove into Corona, New Mexico, where patrons at a local bar informed him of the flying disc stories. Later, Brazel transported some of the silvery debris to the sheriff's office in Roswell. Sheriff George Wilcox called Roswell Army Airfield, who assigned the matter to Major Jesse Marcel and Captain Sheridan Cavett. Brazel took Marcel and Cavett to the debris site to gather more of the material. Public Information Officer Walter Haust issued a press release stating the military had recovered a flying disc near Roswell. Robert Porter, a Roswell Army Airfield flight engineer, was part of the crew who loaded what he was told was a flying saucer onto a flight bound towards Fort Worth. He described the material packaged in wrapping paper when he received it as lightweight and not too large to fit inside of a trunk of a car. When interviewed decades later, Lydia Sleepy, a teletype operator at KOAT station in Albuquerque, New Mexico, claimed that she was typing a story about the wreckage as dictated by reporter Johnny McBoyle until he was interrupted by incoming messages ordering her 
to end communications. On July 9, 1947, the U.S. Army publicly identified the debris as an ordinary weather balloon. For a few days, the world's attention was focused on Roswell, New Mexico. But most people seemed satisfied with the military's explanation, and the story quickly faded. The story would not blow up until 1978, when the National Enquirer ran an article about the incident. All of a sudden, a new version of the event emerged. Some of the original participants, with new reports of an actual spacecraft, alien bodies, and a government cover-up, added new layers to the legend. The story evolved with a seemingly endless array of articles, books, movies, and documentaries about what really happened in the New Mexico desert. In 1993, television audiences were introduced to the long-running series The X-Files, whose fictional stories of FBI agents Fox Mulder and Dana Scully tracking down alien abductions and an international conspiracy only added fuel to the fire. People still debate if the incident was alien craft and a government cover-up, or was it just a downed weather balloon? Whatever it was, people still flock to the city of Roswell today. Please note the city of Roswell was not the actual crash site, but it was close by, and the city was involved in the incident. You can learn more about the incident at the Roswell UFO Museum. The museum is an essential photo opportunity, a definite stop. Lots of information, but please be prepared to read. However, you may find it hard to read everything you want on crowded days. It's ultimately cheesy, spoopy, and great family fun. It's also pet friendly. Roswell, New Mexico may very well be a place of dark tourism. However, that can be easily debated. Whatever the case, it has brought UFO enthusiasts and dark tourists alike to aid this little town's economy. While you are in Roswell, we recommend stopping downtown. While in the summer, it's definitely hot. Downtown is worth a walkthrough. Go in the morning on hot days. There are countless murals, lots of photo ops. Main Street allows dark tourists to have a laugh after hearing stories of true crime, death, and destruction. The whole city is really just a big photo op. Even the local credit union. Just a little past the tourist shops, a special McDonald's exists. As a kid who grew up in the 80s and 90s, McDonald's is nostalgic. Why am I not eat much from McDonald's menu today? I still enjoy a good cup of McDonald's coffee. And this McDonald's is magical. The building is fashioned to look like an alien spaceship with aliens posted outside. In our opinion, it's the best photo op in the city. I do really wish that McDonald's sold merch here because I would buy it. But until then, Grimace exiting a UFO spacecraft will just be part of my wildest dreams. Alien Zone is also a great stop downtown with a family-friendly staff. It space shows signs of age, but we believe age has its own charm. The project feels like it was somebody's dream put to reality. Alien Zone is room after room of fun photo opportunities. Reasonable price and no lawn, and a nice gift shop inside. Before leaving downtown, 
you might want to stop by Stellar Coffee. It is plastered with local art. Signs and menus are also fun and funky. And this Java joint celebrates the Rosal incident while pouring a strong and bold cup of coffee. It's also pet friendly. And there are fun photo opportunities inside as well as nice touches like board games that guests can enjoy while visiting. As you leave town, we recommend stopping at South Park Cemetery. The cemetery is beautiful and shaded. The grounds are lush with grass in the middle of the New Mexico desert. It is still a current place of burial. South Park Cemetery was founded in the 1890s. The cemetery is a mix of both modern and older monuments. Great for morning walk since it's quiet and serene. We experienced visitors and walkers on our visit. A notable burial is William Glenn Dennis. Glenn Dennis was the founder of the International UFO Museum in Roswell, New Mexico, which opened in September 1991 and was a self-professed witness to the 1947 Roswell UFO incident. The deserts of New Mexico have it all. Death, destruction, tragedy, injustice, murder, mystery, stories of cryptid creatures, alien crash sites, fun photo ops, cemeteries, and places of inspiring natural beauty. We are coming to the end of this episode, but we have more episodes coming. Travel with us to New Orleans. New Orleans has a lot of dark history, and we can't wait to visit and share. New Orleans will be shared in two episodes. Be sure to check out CuriousTwins.com for more episodes, events, and tours. You can follow us at Curious Twins Paranormal on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Even if you never get to visit the locations we share, we hope you enjoy learning about these locations as much as we love sharing them. We look forward to the next episode of Curious Travels with Fred and Steven. If you're curious, join us. We appreciate the company.